I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Hello and welcome to a very special post-mortem episode of the 42 Rugby Weekly, brought to you in association with Volkswagen, a proud sponsor of Irish Rugby. A beleaguered Gavin Casey here in studio in Dublin, joined on the line by both Murray Kinsel of the 42 and performance analyst Owen Toulin. Owen, starting with yourself, how are you? Yeah, I've been better, Gavin. Pretty much still uh, licking the wounds after the weekend. It was a it was a tough Saturday night uh, in Tokyo Stadium. Really, really hard watching, and uh, obviously incredibly disappointed for the team. Yeah, Murray. Uh, at least you had a podcast to get some of your grievances out of your system. <laughs> Two podcasts, actually. How are you doing since then? <laughs> yeah, good. It's just disappointment, really. Uh, it's just a shame Ireland aren't here. We're moving on with the World Cup and. I suppose the big boys are still involved and Ireland are, are getting set to fly home um, after yet another uh, failure, I suppose, and failure to perform. So it's it's just so disappointing that they didn't really fire a shot um, on the big occasion again. Yeah, that was the grimmest part, I think, for me, was actually looking at the fixtures on paper for the semifinals, seeing Wales there again and just knowing that we're not there again. Uh, but sure, look, there's always 2023. Um I don't really know where to start, to be honest. Where did it, uh, in a general sense, where did it begin to go wrong for you, Owen, watching that game? And uh, were any of your fears realised? Any of the uh, sort of hang-ups you might have had about this Ireland team and how they would operate against New Zealand? To be honest, Gavin, it's extremely difficult to analyse Ireland's performance, I guess, from a, a tactical perspective, just given the sheer volume of turnovers in that first half. Ireland's game is definitely predicated on on a low error count, low penalty count, and, and kind of sustaining pressure um, through a high phase count. So, the fact they had those, I think it was ten ten turnovers by half time, um, was just such an untypical Irish performance. And and I guess that is one of the biggest fears when you're playing New Zealand teams is they are absolutely uh, lethal off turnover possession and. And um, Ireland conceded a couple of tries off the back of of really really basic handling errors, which which I know they will be incredibly disappointed in because it's as I said it's, it's not typical of them, and um, they just couldn't get an entry point into the game. I think off uh, their first seven line out plays, uh, they they had one penalty, but the other six launches uh, ended up in turnovers. So. And line-out launches are such a kind of integral part to Ireland's attack where they ge- generally generate quite a lot of momentum from. Uh, they were they were turning over possession through handling overs or, or guys running incorrect lines. Or, and to be fair to New Zealand, New Zealand coped extremely well with Ireland's mall. Ireland went to it three times off their first uh, three line-outs. And, and while they got a penalty on one occasion, the other two times, uh, New Zealand collapsed the first one. And then Sander tried to carrying close and got turned over. And then again on the third one off, off a mall play, Henshaw goes into contact, uh, poor contact skills, as Murray's alluded to in his article, and gets turned over. So really from the get-go, Ireland failed to apply any pressure to New Zealand. And once they couldn't apply scoreboard pressure and the converse happened, then Ireland Roy's going to be in trouble. 
Yeah, I was wondering that, Murray, about the early stages of the game in particular and as to whether this result and overall performance was actually disproportionately bad in relation to where this Ireland team are. And we would have had concerns, obviously, coming into the game, but just the fact that they went down by two scores relatively early and had a few of those errors punished relatively early, that they did begin to chase the game and it became a quixotic task. And like the phrase chase the game as well, James Ryan used it after the game. It can be almost dismissed as a a cliche or a trope in sport, but there is a real psychological element to that, particularly when you're up against it as it was or as it is against a team uh, where you're looking to force the issue a little bit. And that's where errors become compound errors. And just there's a psychological breakdown as well as um, a physical one. Yeah, and we discussed before that we felt Ireland had to get in front and had to be the front runners because that's their style of play and that's what they're built on essentially is smothering you and controlling you, um, putting their kick pressure on, using their maul, which was, as Owen says, really well negotiated and, and dealt with by the, the Kiwis. It, like essentially the game was over after 20 minutes. I, hmm. I mean, when you're sitting in the stadium and Ireland are attacking, kind of coming close to half time, and you think, oh, if they get a score here, maybe they're coming back, but they're, they're never going to come back. They're 17 0 down after 21 minutes, and that's game over. Um, and the deep frustration is that a lot of it is self inflicted, as Owen's kind of gone through there. It was such a poor start. And even if you think of their first uh, scrum attack, a, a clever little kind of innovative. Uh, switch play with Stockdale they, they they obviously used him down the, the short side against Scotland twice to chip ahead um, and they kind of show the Kiwis that picture uh, and, and kind of Moonga reacts and they, they start dropping off and, and then they switch back under the scrum and there's space for Sexton to kick pass to Earls now to be fair my kick passing is poor it's a tough skill on the move but I think Sexton would be disappointed not to put the ball into Earls hands there and, and really stress the Kiwis early on I mean Owen's gone through some of the, the errors there like CJ Sanders first carry is just a, it's a poor carry technically like he, CJ Sanders is a good ball carrier he's got the skills he's got an ability to to beat tacklers to be solid to recycle the ball but he's actually leading in with the ball in front of him almost inviting the Kiwis to choke him up and, and they do so their their defence was superb um, and we got to put that slant on as well they were incredibly good I, I would say it was their best performance for four years really they mm. were pretty much perfect in how they performed they were so clean and effective and efficient their defence was inc- incredible like the stats they, they barely missed a tackle um, but, but Ireland had chances even in that first quarter uh, we went through in, 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 in the article people can check out the examples um, you, you know in the eighth minute Ireland put together a really nice attack where Rory Best goes through on an inside pass from Sex and he offloads to Conor Murray there's there's real momentum in their attack um, and then Best makes a little link pass out the back to Sex and he puts the ball into Earls' hands and there's a real chance. You can see Larmer with his hand up screaming for the ball, but, but Earls doesn't pass. Instead, he kind of, he's hesitant. He hangs on to it. Goodie makes a good tackle. Uh, the ball goes loose and, and Bridge is suddenly hacking ahead and Ireland have to retreat again. There's another one where just before they win that penalty that, that Sexton didn't find touch with. Down the left-hand side, there's a similar opportunity where uh, I think it was best again, actually. He makes the link pass out the back um, and Sexton has Henshaw and Stockdale outside him. Sev Reese is really isolated, but Henshaw gets a little bit tied to Sexton and Sexton almost kind of hesitates in his decision instead of like ripping that pass across to Stockdale as, as Sexton at, at his very best would do. He just hesitates and hits Henshaw short and, and the opportunity's gone now. They get the penalty, but 
like Moanga does, does superbly and, and if Sexton finds that touch in the in the left corner they're only 10-0 down they potentially get a, a, a try from grinding close to the, the try line but he doesn't find the touch and Moanga does it superbly to, to keep it in play but again it's a shortcoming on Ireland's part so really a lot of these wounds were just self-inflicted and that's the massively frustrating thing for Ireland um, and that's what they've got to figure out why these basic simple errors that Ireland's players should be better than um, why they were making those it felt like again there was a I suppose a mental issue that a hang up and you know afterwards they're talking about building this game up too much in their minds for, for too long but whatever it was it was just it was just so self-inflicted and, and that's the real frustration I, I think the other frustration is there was definitely areas to exploit New Zealand you, you could see it in the sand where, where Ireland were trying to attack or structured uh, play particularly of line out they got the holes they were looking for like that that yeah. six man line out play that they they launched uh, I wrote about it last week in my article to try and get at Moanga who defends in that 13 channel um, they went after Moanga second phase they, they ran a straightforward kind of target play into midfield and then used Ringrose really cleverly second phase as a decoy with mm. Sexton out the back and they get the picture that they would have seen on tape with uh, Moanga shooting towards Sexton which left a nice little inside pass for Earls and then Carney's running a short line on on Sexton's outside but because Moanga actually slips over he doesn't defend well at all the picture changes quite quickly and and all of a sudden it kind of opens up for Sexton and there's a bit of hesitation and then Carney runs a, a short line off Sexton rather than holding his width and, and the kind of play breaks down Barrett hacks through and that's the third try of the game so going from it could have been a point where it went 17-7 it goes the other way and the, and the game is dead and that'll be the frustration for Ireland because as I said there was definitely uh, possibilities of, of kind of attacking New Zealand and, and the the plan that they had put in place uh, probably would have worked out if they'd executed better and and I even thought in their attack there, that that phase of play you're talking about uh, Murray there was there was signs of expansion in their game I think it was a six phase sequence and they only played off Conor Murray twice everything else came off sex and then you could see a little bit more width in their attack and there yeah. was definitely uh, areas to exploit New Zealand so in that kind of opening 15 to 20 minutes of Ireland that executed a little bit better and what crucially you need to do against New Zealand teams is apply scoreboard pressure. If you can't apply that scoreboard pressure and you let them get into flow, then their game just becomes ridiculously hard to uh, contain. Is there any way to legislate for those errors, Owen? It may be an impossible question to answer, but over the course of the tournament, you would have seen it as kind of a constant really in Ireland's performances even the better ones against Scotland and Samoa where a line break mightn't result in a ball going to hand and just missed opportunities and then it seems to culminate in this game against New Zealand where you really can't afford for it to happen where just again errors are are compounding on top of each other and it seems as much mental as it is technical and it becomes this soup of (laughs) misery and uh, and knock-ons and so on. Yeah, I think to be fair, earlier in the competition, humidity definitely played a factor, especially in, in Kobe and in, in the indoor stadium. Humidity was definitely an issue, but not, now weather conditions were perfect on Saturday. There was rain earlier in the day, but the pitch looked dry and, and New Zealand's ball skills looked looked 
very good. So I don't think the weather conditions were to blame. And I, I think, I guess once you start making a couple of errors, and don't forget, this is a lot of Irish players have said this is the biggest game of their careers. They knew getting past the quarterfinal was something up for a lot of guys. It was their last chance to tick off in their career. They'd pretty much achieved everything else there was to achieve in their rugby career. So they would have placed a huge amount of pressure on themselves to to get past the quarterfinal. And, and when a couple of errors start to to creep into uh, into a team, it, it can have a snowball effect. And as I said, it's it's not a typical uh, kind of trait of this Irish team. And, and it, it's just so unfortunate it, had, it happened. And for a lot of guys, it's, it was the biggest game of their career. Yeah, obviously there was an enormous weight on their shoulders, Murray. But as you alluded to, and as Joe Schmidt pointed out, perhaps, perhaps they had bigged the game up too much from too far out. Uh, to the point that it it became almost insurmountable or all-encompassing. And Rory Best mentioned that maybe they might have missed a couple of almost checkpoints en route to this game where they uh, should have been keeping certain aspects of their game taken over, but it was all about getting to a quarterfinal. Were you surprised by any of those admissions or even theories from the Ireland setup as to why it went wrong. It just seems so unschmidt like when we consider mm. that we're so used to have him having um, a really inept control over proceedings in that Ireland team. Yeah, it, I, I was glad they were at least trying to give an explanation. And, and Joe Smith's first words in the post-match press were like, I don't have an excuse. I, uh, I, it's hard to find a reason, but they, they did attempt to kind of trash it out a little bit and Look, if that was the reason, it, it kind of makes sense that they mentally got it wrong and, and built it up too much. And there's just so much pressure. Ask Rory Best, what is it about quarterfinals that seems to bring out the worst in Ireland? And he, and he said, it, it's the fact that we haven't won one, um, that Ireland haven't won one. And there's so much pressure on it and, and it builds up for four years and you're the team who's got to break that duck. But clearly it was it was too much. And really moving into the next cycle now you, you you kind of have to ask how are they going to negotiate this better how do you mentally build up to it and, and I suppose the Kiwis have they have their history with, with World Cups and obviously had a lot of heartbreak before they get over the line in 2011 again um, and how they how they I suppose set their culture and mentally use uh, Gilbert and Oka and, um, and and maybe made themselves calmer in those circumstances when they got there and, and that was a an aspect that impressed me about the Kiwis all week they were very calm and even in the game they were very calm and and while Ireland had spoken about their confidence it, they didn't look confident when it when it came down to it including in those first opening minutes really they they looked inhibited and and stressed and and nervous about it and and it's just a it's a massive mental barrier that's that's going to take a lot of hard work to get through. Look, Schmidt, more than anyone, and the players more than anyone, are going to be hurting so badly and they're going to have so many regrets. And Schmidt will look at his selection and whether he should have mixed it up and whether he had too much faith in those frontliner players who had been first choice for so long and, and maybe had lost form in 2019. And yeah, the, I suppose the steam just ran out of the kind of Schmidt ship at, at exactly the wrong time in 2019. Um, the, it's been a bad year. There have been several underperformances and to their misfortune they come up against the Kiwi side which was just rampant um, they were so good and all those selections that, that Hansen had made even with the the uh, the inexperienced players that we probably talked about quite a lot before the game they were superb and their energy was infectious and guys like Severus and George Bridge were so solid in everything they did so impactful 
Jack Goodhue was just superb. I mean, his handling for that uh, second Aaron Smith try, the the scrum play where Ireland go and try and shut him down. Ringrose, really aggressive line speed, but his hands to get that ball away were just sublime. You look at some of the tip on passes from Ritalik and Reed and um, Whitelock, they were superb under pressure from, from Ireland's line speed again. So you got to applaud them for how they picked Ireland apart, but... Yeah, Irish rugby has a, a big job on its hands because World Cups are, they're really everything. And, and for the casual fan watching on again as Ireland, I suppose, fail in a quarter final, it's, it's it's frustrating. It'll turn you off. And, you know, the the tag of being World Cup, uh, a poor World Cup team is, is really well earned, to, to be honest, again. Yeah, it was jarring even hearing Bowden Barrett speaking afterwards about how, how much fun he had in the game and you talk about even yeah. the less experienced Kiwis the two wingers uh, just seem to be so uninhibited and perhaps you know they don't have that uh, psychological baggage of having not made it because they haven't been part of Kiwi teams that didn't win World Cups and the Kiwi teams that preceded this one have won World Cups so they're playing with a, a certain type of freedom that we can't quite unlock in a quarter final. but Owen how do we navigate then the next four years, not necessarily from a personnel standpoint or even a tactical standpoint, but more so our approach in the lead up to another World Cup. Is it time to perhaps borderline sacrifice a Six Nations campaign or two in order to potentially blood new players, in order to gain an understanding or evolve as a team? Uh, Or like, you know... By the same token, then, if you look back at England in 2018, they were getting absolutely slated and talking about they didn't know where they were going wrong uh, in an off year for them. Uh, Like, maybe there isn't quite a a master plan and things just have to click into place at the right time. Yeah, I I don't think the Six Nations will be sacrificed. I think that's the cash cow that runs the game for the RFU. So uh, it's an incredibly important tournament to the Union. So it will never be used as a development um, competition. And... Yeah, I, I, to be honest, it's hard to find what the what the right answer is. Why Ireland haven't got past the quarterfinal, and, and is it part of the preparation in the, in that four year cycle? I'm not so sure. Um, 2015, I don't think he can legislate for the injuries that Ireland experienced leading into that Argentina game. Uh, 2011, obviously, come off the back of a Grand Slam in 09, and 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 on the day against Wales, we're just beaten by a better team in Wales. Um, I don't know if you can say much about the four years before that had anything to do with that loss in 2011. And and again, is it just a, a case of the Irish team peaked in, in 2018? That was as good as it was going to get for that group of players. And, and once you get to the summit, it, it's very, very difficult to stay there. And that's when you probably do need to keep evolving your game and find different ways to break down teams because the analysis that's done these days is you need to be evolving and progressing and finding different ways to challenge defences. And that probably will be a criticism of Ireland is that they haven't developed as much as other teams have. When you look at New Zealand, like a great example from New Zealand at the weekend is everyone's talking about what a brilliant attacking game they had. They kicked 29 times compared to Ireland's 23. So they set up their attacking plan through a really varied kicking game through Moanga and Barrett and, and won a territorial battle and manipulated Ireland's backfield. And that's not something you'd always, um, I guess, uh, associate with New Zealand's teams. But they, I think they've taken a little bit of a leaf out of Ireland's book, to be fair, because the amount of times they turned Ireland with little uh, grubber kicks down the edges, kick passes to manipulate Carney and the wingers. Um, 
they just they dominated territory. I think Ireland spent fifty percent of their possession in their own half, which um, is something you'd associate with Irish teams doing themselves. So I think New Zealand have evolved their game in the last two years and, and understand the the value of of a really really uh, robust kicking plan to kind of set up your attack. Yeah, I think one of the things we certainly will have to do uh, over the next four years is take the November tests with an even greater pinch of salt. But how improved were they, Murray, from your perspective, even compared to where they were 11 months ago? Like, it was a different beast. We kind of did know that coming into the game, but um, Mm -hmm. perhaps not to the extent uh, to which it unfolded. Yeah, it's it's a completely different team. And and you you have to give them major credit for that. Steve Hansen came into his press conference afterwards, pretty classy. He congratulated Joe Schmidt and, and Rory Best. Then he said, look, Kieran Reid was phenomenal, which he was. Answered all the criticisms. I suppose this year, people have kind of been questioning his place. He was he was sensational. Probably one of his best games ever. And then he congratulated Ian Foster, his assistant coach, the attack coach, for essentially over 11 months, you know, you think that's not possible really at, at the top level, for kind of transforming how they played, certainly in personnel um, and probably just in simplifying everything. That That's the thing about New Zealand. They're, you know, it's not easy what they do, but it's simple. Um, like Owen, it's brilliant sitting beside him in, in press rooms because he'll, he'll open the laptop and show you a little example. And he mentions the kicking there. That first bomb, he, he was going through the clips with me, the first bomb from Moanga just puts a doubt in Carney's mind. And then later in the game, it, it just affects his positioning in the backfield. And, and then suddenly there's space for a kick pass. We mentioned some of the tip on passes as well. Like that's a, a basic skill that they've absolutely nailed um, and makes them so hard to play against. Every single player is comfortable I suppose making decisions on the ball, they've all got really good individual skill levels. And, and again, like Owen, I'd love to hear your perspective on Ireland appear to have slightly faded and regressed with those skill levels. Like their passing hasn't been good this year consistently and, and they're dropping a lot of ball, obviously. Um, and even some of the other technical details seem to have kind of faded away, whereas New Zealand's individual technical skills were, were just superb, weren't they? Yeah, and I, I think a huge amount of emphasis is is placed on that in New Zealand training sessions. I've heard a statistic that each player needs to touch the ball a hundred times a day in training, and each each touch needs to finish with a pass. So they place a huge amount of um, value on their catch pass skills. Uh, they talk about their departure time of their forwards when they arrive at the gain line, depending on if it's front foot front foot ball, etc. And then that control that control of uh, foot speed allows that those tips to happen, Murray, that you're talking about, particularly when they're playing off 10, which I think is definitely an evolution of their play. They're now going 9, 10, 10 to the first forward, and then that first forward is tipping to a second forward. So that's that's a three-pass sequence against a hard-press uh, defence in, in, that Andy Farrell uses. So... They've understood that they had to develop their game and their catch pass is a huge part of it. And they talk about that first step of their forward must be a for, uh, a step forward. So they're trying to keep all their forward ball carriers nice and square at the line. Um, so they, they, they have a framework to their attack and they obviously have a structure, but it's the individual skill levels within that framework that allows the ball carrier to make those decisions, whether to carry, tip or link. Uh, and then their backs... The, the triple threat of their backs, whether they run, pass, or kick, and and that's exactly why the the Moanga Barrett axis is is working so well. Their uh, 
run pass kick ratio was really really nice at the weekend I think I think Barrett had 20 runs 17 passes and 10 kicks Amonga had 7 runs 23 passes and 14 kicks so that's such a nice spread of your possession and then it makes it really hard for defences to know what you're going to do there's there's not a predictability to your play and and I think that's the beauty of New Zealand's attack it's very very difficult to analyse because they have three three decisions every time they touch the ball Um and that is predicated on an extremely high skill skill level, which probably at this moment in time, the Irish players would not be at the same level and probably why there's more of a kind of prescriptive, structured uh, game that, that the Irish team are playing. Mm. Yeah, there were times it looked like New Zealand were playing EA Sports Rugby 08 just with some of the offloads <laughs> going to hand from the ground that didn't seem to make physical sense and I think we probably owe them a Facebook apology at this stage for wasting their time but just to gaze into the future a little bit more and again this is kind of more hypothetical and, and more so theorising but in relation to Andy Farrell's role now with this team and I'd be interested to get your take on this Owen as somebody who's been involved in a coaching setup at international level with Ireland but is there any sort of an obstacle there mentally or otherwise for the players to overcome when their head coach who should kind of be um, presiding over a fresh start has actually played a fairly integral role in what has been one of the lowlights of their individual careers and uh, in uh, one of the lowlights of their kind of time together as a, a collective? Yeah, I, I think Andy Farrell is a, a very respected coach within the setup. I've, I've never worked with Andy, but from all reports, uh, hugely kind of respected by the players. And his defence has kind of been a cornerstone of Irish success over the last four years. And, and um, he, he he has a big reputation. What what I think will evolve and what I think Ireland need to be very sure that they do evolve is their attack. And, and rather than trying to replicate what's been before, I think when Mike Cat comes in, he needs to kind of stamp his authority and, and, and be very strong in, in what kind of rugby he wants to uh, to play with Ireland because essentially he's been he's been brought out um, externally. He's been brought into the Irish setup for a kind of I guess a fresh pair of eyes um, in terms of attacking rugby and where they see they can go. So I, I think he's a key appointment, and obviously um, with John Fogarty coming in to to work with the Fords, that'll be another um, fresh pair of eyes um, from a set piece perspective. So. I think I think there'll definitely be a natural evolution in terms of how Ireland play, and um, yeah, I think Andy Farrell will obviously still have a, a big influence on the defensive side of things. Looking ahead then to that semi-final between England and New Zealand, and uh, in doing that, we'll look back on England's victory over Australia fairly organically, anyway. But God, it's uh, it's just an unbelievable fixture now on paper, based on the two performances we saw from both of these teams over the weekend probably fitting of a World Cup final in this tournament uh, and yet one of them will be going home before they make that stage. Um, give us your thoughts on that one in an overall sense. First, Murray, uh, New Zealand and England. Yeah, going to be absolutely fascinating. <laughs> It'll be brutally physical. It'll be fascinating tactically because they're both really astute teams and as you say it kind of feels almost like a final I'd imagine the winner of the tournament will come out of this game um, it's such a nice matchup as well because England have been ticking over and, and getting better and 
it still feels like there's a little bit more to come from them. I really enjoyed this performance, I have to say. I thought their attack was was very good and, and Owen Farrell's passing was just a joy to watch, really. He gets so square up the pitch, fix a defender and then late throws that miss pass. You think of him hitting two laggy before the first Johnny May try or that pass to Kyle Sinclair. That was a beautiful pass late in the face of the defence. And just so hard to read, his, his body language just doesn't give away where the ball is going. It, it's such a late pass. Um, so that was really enjoyable to watch. And you think of Henry Slade, that grubber on the move, like we're talking about kicking on the move. That was sensational. I think that's on his bad foot as well. Um, so loads to like about England. Again, physically at the right times in the key moments, they're they're dominant in that aspect as well. And their set piece is going to be a, a big focus against the All Blacks and trying to suffocate them that way. In a way, Ireland weren't able to do. I suppose, again it's just frustrating how Australia played. I mean, they just... I don't know if there's a test team that hands as many opportunities to opposition as they do with just crazy decisions and poor passes and they, they're just naive again. It happened again and I just found it very frustrating to watch in a in a big game. There was no sense that they were thinking their way through it. I know you probably would have been frustrated as well, Owen, because we were even talking about the kicking. Like, they didn't kick enough. First of all, I think they were the lowest kicking team in, in the quarterfinals and, and they try and run everything and, and throw some of those crazy passes. But it just felt like they, similarly to Ireland, I suppose, that they fed into England getting ahead and, and taking a, a kind of dominant position in the game. Yeah, and we talk about that in terms of New Zealand's kind of approach to their kicking plan, setting up their attacking game. But uh, Michael Chekin, as coaches, clearly see uh, ball possession and maintaining possession as, as uh, the most best way of attacking. But I think the stats show in the World Cup, those teams with the highest rook counts, uh, it does not cor- correlate to successful attacks. And, and there needs to be variation to what you're doing in an attack. And and it became very, very easy for England to defend. They just loaded the line with 14 at times because they knew the kick threat wasn't going to be there. And, and I think they had 153 carries compared to England's 71. So over double the amount of carries of England. But um, while they, they were gaining momentum at times, they were playing, I think, two thirds of their possession was in, were in their own half. So they were kind of wearing themselves out between their own 22 and halfway. And, and New England were just kind of willing to kick long to them and kind of almost let them hang themselves, which which they eventually, unfortunately, did. I think they had 18 turnovers in the game and those two intercept uh, passes, which led to England try. So at times, England's attack didn't have to work incredibly hard for the scores they got. And um, yeah, it, it is frustrating to watch to watch mm. Australia and, and kind of just a lack of variation. While it's commendable to kind of be be brave in possession and, and try and attack from deep. There needs to be multi-layers to your game to be able to expose the kind of best defences in world rugby. And, and I think Australia in the rugby championship, they put 40 points on New Zealand with that high uh, possession-based game. But you get to a World Cup and England have obviously seen those games and I've understood how to defend against it. And and that's probably the most disappointing thing is is that lack of variation and, and the lack of consistency in selection, to be honest. Six game, I think it's their fifth game and they've had uh, different halfback partnerships in each game. And, and there are two positions where you need continuity of selection to be able to to drive your attack around the field. And I, and I think they've got it, I think they've got it badly wrong with, with how they manage this selection during the World Cup. Yeah, and Czech is gone now, obviously, on the back of that. And, and you have to say, like, not to 
go at him when he's down but it was a poorly coached campaign from Australia tactically as you say selection wise it was just muddy it was all over the place it didn't feel like there was a plan in either sense it didn't feel like they were really in control of it almost selecting on a whim and and playing on a whim as well and, and that just doesn't really cut it at this top level unless your basics are as good as the Kiwis are like Australian rugby has some sensational athletes you look at Corabetti who's been brilliant in this tournament and he's just a he's just fantastic to watch Jordan Patea now is going to be a superstar he is like thoroughbred he's a huge guy for 19 and he clearly can make good decisions he's clearly got skill level but you just hope it's harnessed in the right way and that's what frustrates me about Australian rugby I know it's obviously a battle and other sports pull and and, and take players and, and sometimes they lose guys to NRL or, or whatever sport it is I know in Melbourne obviously where you are on um there's obviously major competition, but I just it frustrates me how Australia play um, and and almost shoot themselves in the foot so often with with crazy decisions. Even someone as experienced as Pocock throwing that pass where Slade picks it off and then Johnny May scores. It's just lunacy when you're in a decent position and yeah, you gotta back yourself to to play with a bit of ambition and and be able to offload, but it's just it's doing it at the right time and being mature about it um, and Australia just didn't have that and yeah you, you feel for Czech obviously departing but they've got to nail that next one and get a bit of consistency into that selection and, and get a bit of consistency tactically I know Dave Rennie is the name really doing the rounds and I think he'd be a good fit because he also brings that really kind of I suppose that brutal edge and a real maturity and, and no nonsense kind of approach as well as being quite expansive. So he could be a perfect fit. And I just hope Australia um, develop that athletic talent in the right way. Have you been impressed, Murray, by how England have added layers to their attack and how they now kind of back themselves to play a little bit, but have the structures in place that allow them to do that? Like going back to the Grand Slam game in 2018, granted they had uh, both uh, both areas, uh, in-goal areas extended because they were looking to kick in behind <laughs> and that was maybe part of their evolution as a team. It pay dividends with one try but also pay dividends for Ireland as well but like even that team in 2018 seemed a lot more one-dimensional it was more about more so about physicality now you look at their back line and pretty much everyone apart from say Tulangi has a fairly significant ability to kick the ball and not just hoof it into the air but actually like really precise tactical kicking in behind uh, members of the opposition back three you think of Slade's one even from midfield uh, they just seem to have a lot of strings to their bow and they've seemingly added them over a relatively short period of time which actually could offer some uh, hope for Ireland as they see as they seek to develop over the next couple of years Yeah definitely and there's such a nice blend to their game I mean, the, the four-pack is, is jaw-droppingly physical. Those two flankers, Tom Curry and Sam Underhill, wow, they can hit hard. They can play. You can see Tom Curry obviously putting away that that pass for for an assist for a try. They can jackal. They can t- tackle. They can carry. Um, and there's so much physicality in that front five as well. But Sinclair, for example, he can really pass the ball and make decisions. Jamie George is probably one of the most skillful hookers in the world. And and I, I'd agree with you. I think they have developed that side of their game and they have encouraged that side of the game um, probably in a mature way that Australia, for example, haven't. Mm. It, it's probably overlooked because they're so big and powerful and, and their set piece is, is a strength and they can be very direct, and but but they can really play. And, and you mentioned that backline 
every single one of them really now is a, is a playmaker. Elliot Daly from 15, a, a decision where a lot of people doubted Eddie Jones and, and Elliot Daly certainly had kind of teething problems settling in there and, and maybe even still some of his high uh, ball fielding isn't isn't the sharpest but adds so much going forward and, and his counter counter attacking his kick return he's essentially transformed them in that area England weren't really a team who had a threat um, countering back at you but now they really do with him injecting from fullback Anthony Watson's footwork is just incredible to come back from an Achilles injury and, and be that explosive I think he'd be five defenders in this game um, he's just a, an absolute handful to tackle and even the Henry Slade selection which was Controversial. He hadn't played a lot of rugby and, and certainly looked a little bit rusty early on in the game. He got stripped and and just took his time to settle in, but but he was classy in the end. And um, I know Eddie Jones was bristling at the idea that he dropped George Ford. He talked about this rugby being a, a 23-man game and, and welcomed that journalist who asked the question to, to modern <laughs> modern rugby, which was quite funny, but um, it, it does make sense though. They, they have that 23 now and there's just, yeah, there's a whole lot to like about their game and and I would hope that people don't overlook the, the quality and um, effectiveness they're bringing in attack. Like they're not going to, they're not going to make thirty line breaks a game. They're not going to beat as many defenders or or offload as much as the All Blacks. But what they do is invariably effective when they do have those kind of attacking um, attacking passages. So yeah, it is going to be a major challenge for for the All Blacks. And yeah, I just can't wait to see how England attempt to to pick them apart because the All Blacks defense was it was sensational against Ireland. Yeah, we'll really preview the game properly uh, on Thursday and uh, it's going to be fascinating, as you say, to see how that one plays out. Interesting as well, like what, as you mentioned, Jones pointing out that it's now a 23-man game. I think uh, a couple of years ago, England were really pushing this hard when they started to call their substitutes or replacements yeah. finishers, if you recall. Uh, so it's been something that they've been trying to get people on board with for quite a while. I think, to be fair, the rest of the world is uh, has listened and has a similar approach. But um, you'd wonder, like, even just culturally, uh, if the role of a substitute will over time be sort of perceived differently now than, um, than just somebody coming on for 20 minutes or so, that it does genuinely become uh, uh, part of people's consideration that it is a 23-man game. Um, there was a obviously a 31st man on the pitch during Wales' uh, victory over France, as there tends to be referee Jaco Piper. Now, he's in a bit of hot water. I don't know if people <laughs> at home have uh, seen the image doing the rounds of him posing with a number of Wales fans with his elbow raised, seemingly in reference to the red card that he showed to Sebastian Vahavamina for elbowing Wales' Aaron Wainwright. The vice president of the French Rugby Federation has called for an explanation <laughs> after this photo began to be circulated. I'd say the simple explanation is that uh, Jakob Piper is acting the Burke. But interested to get your uh, take on that, Owen. Um, I don't know, have you seen the photo firstly? Yeah, I did. It popped up on my social media today. So I've seen it's unfortunate for uh, Jaco Piper. I've, to be honest, th- there is absolutely no excuse for Valmina's red card. It, it, there's not, there's no one in world rugby that would excuse that or, or suggest that um, it wasn't a red card. It was a mindless action from the second rower and, and cost uh, France a place in the semi final ultimately. And, and yeah, there, there's no arguments for the red card there. And I think. France have talked about potentially that strip um, at the end of the game from Thomas Williams, um, which ultimately led to uh, Wales' winning try. Whether it was forward or not, I think it's it's borderline, isn't it? They've gone to the TMO on it. The TMO couldn't couldn't find reason to adjudicate it forward. So 
yeah, for mine, I, I actually thought Jakob Piper had a reasonably decent game. Um, and yeah, I don't think there should be any qualms there. Yeah, I'd agree he had a decent game. You could understand probably, particularly given that added context of the TMO decision, Murray, how the French would feel slightly aggrieved though by this picture doing the rounds. <sighs> Honestly, get over it, people. Honestly, I feel for the guy. He's, he's literally been sound to a couple of fans who asked him to have a bit of a joke. I, I cannot understand it. It's a World Rugby investigation now. Like, he's literally having a bit of personality. Sebastian Vamina elbowed a man in the face in a World Cup quarterfinal. Like, that is lunacy, what he did. And it did cost him the game. That was the, uh, that was the major decisive factor. Talk about that crazy decision from Vamahina, or, or mindless decision. It wasn't even a decision, really. But, oh, come on, he's having a bit of fun with fans. Like, people need to get over it, in my opinion, honestly. Like, I just hate this kind of stuff. The trial by social media... Um, and, and it just discourages refs from having any personality and uh, I don't know I just I don't have a lot of time for this honestly to be honest with you I think it's really frustrating yeah that's fair enough I, I, to be honest I, I have to say like I, I slightly disagree with you like I, I think you're a professional referee you've just refereed a game in which you have made that decision to send a guy off with a completely correct decision Valmina is an idiot for what he did yeah. his decision absolutely changed the game it's not on you to, to keep a guy you know on the field for in the interest of France remaining competitive like Jakob Piper acted thoroughly professionally on the pitch but I just think what's the point in putting yourself in this situation I know he's being sound to fans but how easy is it to say ah look I just refereed a game involving your country in France I don't really want to pose for a picture with you or at least I don't want to pose for a picture with my elbow up in the air making light of the situation making fun of the player that I sent off I, I think it's lunacy from Piper as well as yes people probably need to get over it slightly like I don't think there should be an investigation into it or that people should feel especially aggrieved but I do think he's just landed himself in hot water pointlessly and as much as yeah it might discourage referees from having a personality you know the, things can go the other way slightly as well with, with referees where they have a little bit too much personality and uh, you know I for me, I think it's just such an avoidable situation. Shake a few hands and say, you know, enjoy your evening, lads. But the picture I felt was was probably a bit much and just a bit ill-advised on, on his behalf. But look, that debate will rage on, no doubt. <laughs> There's so much to talk about in the game anyway. Um, we did say beforehand, Murray, that when we were chatting with Andy Dunn earlier in the week, that like France were obviously live dogs coming into this one. Uh, and so it proved I mean they built a lead obviously the red card was a massive turning point but it's just it feels yeah. like a real missed opportunity for France given Wales looked to be kind of under par actually um, for a lot mm. of that game Yeah it's such a shame they're not in the tournament anymore it, it would have made it even more interesting I think in the in the semi-finals to have them in there because it was it was such a good first half in particular like the tries they scored were superb obviously one of them was very direct but the, the Charles Olivon one was sublime really and, and to see a young guy like Entomac playmaking with such composure and, and making such good decisions on the ball was really thrilling Vakatawa obviously was superb in, in the centre as well a guy who wasn't even in the mix at the very start of their World Cup campaign and has kind of come from very far back to, to be a key guy Damian Penno's offload to him was just brilliant off, off another nice team passage of, of attack they were there was so much to like about them. They were beating defenders for fun, offloading. Um, it was the very best of French rugby in it, and, and you kind of look at them almost with jealousy from an Irish point of view because the the, the knockouts seemed to almost bring out the best of them in that regard. And it clearly didn't um, affect them mentally to to be playing in such a big game. And it was all going so well until that moment. And you know, it, obviously red cards are decisive in games, and and that essentially decides this one. Wales obviously took their time to get there and it was dramatic in the end. Um, 
But I just think it's a crying shame how France put themselves in such a brilliant position with the, the quality of their attack um, and the, the quality of their mental approach. And then suddenly it just slips. And, and Vahamihina, who just has such a track record of these silly, silly decisions. He's such a poorly disciplined player. It was actually, I was kind of laughing with one of the other journalists, um, a Kiwi guy, Liam Napier, asked me before the tournament to just do a quick little kind of prediction win, best player of the tournament. And uh, one of the questions was the, the overrated player of the tournament. And I felt kind of harsh. I was like, who the hell am I going to put in here? It's kind of a harsh question. But Fahamina was the one I, I opted for just because he, he gives away so many silly penalties that are needless time and time again. And and now he's cost his, his team the, their place in the World Cup. So... Yeah, you, you feel some sympathy for them, but they again, like Ireland, they, they shot themselves in the foot in the end. Yeah, on the other hand, Owen, then Wales kind of backing up that consistency of result that they've had pretty much since last November. A couple of warm-up blips with the caveat of uh, having their preparation done against Ireland aside. They seem to be, even while under par as they were at the weekend, able to grind out results and they're back in a semi-final again. It's one hell of an achievement by Warren Gatland. Yeah, absolutely. I think Warren Gatland was was surprised they made it to the to the semi. I think in his post match ca- press conference, he was saying he was already uh, writing up his kind of farewell speech as he as he thought Wales were were dead and buried. And statistically, I do not know how they won the game. I I can't imagine what it's like to support France because they are <laughs> infuriating to watch. Like that first half, as as Murray said, they were just switches, running lines, offloads. It was just the French of old and it was great to watch. And and I think they had 26 defenders beaten compared to Wales' 17, 16 clean line breaks to Wales' 6, 11 offloads to Wales' 3. All the metrics is an attack. They were by far the superior team. And then those the two critical instances in that second half was A, Entermac going off. I, I thought when Camille Lopez came on, he came a little sat a bit deeper even before the red card and France's attack didn't look potent as it did and then when 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 France went down to 14 men what and what Jacques Brunel should be really focusing on himself is how they managed the next 30 minutes so they went to a mall of every line out in that second half despite only having seven forwards and were completely ineffective with it and then the the there's two moments of madness in the game first is the Valmina red card the second one is France have a five-meter scrum on their own line and they elect a scrummage with seven rather than tagging on a, on a back to the scrum. Like, there's no benefit of having seven backs in play at that stage. You literally need to win the scrum and kick the ball out of play. But France decide to, to scrum with seven, come under pressure and, and concede the try. And it's just it, absolutely infuriating and mindless that they weren't able to to do the correct things when you're down a forward because lots of teams train these scenarios because red cards, yellow cards have had such an impact on the World Cup that France just had no way of managing it. And I honestly think it was more France beating themselves than Wales winning the game, to be honest. There was some good performances. Like I thought Alan Wynne-Jones as a skipper was outstanding and really led by example. There was, there was a moment on a kick chase in a crucial part where he's, he's the one leading the kick chase and makes a crucial tackle that leads to a turnover and... Outside of that, I, I don't really feel Wales Wales uh, brought a lot to the game from an attacking perspective. They were just gutsy and, and kind of hung in there and, and hung tight. But um, they're going to need to improve a lot going into that Stafford game. But the other interesting point was that France were the other team to, to have a weekend off uh, the weekend previous. And they definitely looked fresher in that first half. And, and I thought Wales looked a little bit kind of a little bit more sluggish. And it kind of showed that they had played four games on the bounce. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
we will touch upon as well very briefly the other quarter final which was South Africa's resounding victory over Japan in the end I think the handicap for this one was 15 and when I saw that originally it looked like it was a little bit harsh on Japan but the more you thought of it the more you sort of realized that yeah if South Africa could kind of just keep on top by a score or so that eventually the dam would burst to some extent and so it proved in the end doesn't take much away from what was a magisterial and mystical run by Japan in this competition but actually by the end of things South Africa looked quite impressive Murray didn't they? Yeah they played perfectly I guess it took them a while to get to the right formula but when they did it was really effective in just grinding Japan down in the first half when they when the box went down to 14 men with the yellow card for the beast you know Japan got into that attacking flow and again, it was brilliant to watch, but they didn't get the try that their pressure really needed. They they had to score a, a try in that time. And that was their kind of purple patch. And, and after that, the, the box managed it really well. Really, they probably could have pulled clear earlier in the game. They blew a couple of opportunities. And uh, I know they were frustrated with some of Wayne Barnes' decisions coming towards halftime. And, and they, they felt they, they should have been probably further on ahead. And eventually, the, the pressure told, like their kicking game, their carrying game they're mauling obviously like 40 meter maul for for one of the tries where marks offloads to to clerk who was outstanding in this game and um, they just played with a a sensible game plan to to see out a, a really impressive win their defense obviously was high quality and that's their real strength their attack for me is a little bit limited compared to the you know the likes of the all blacks or even england they don't have a, a huge amount to it and there seems to be almost a disconnection between the the powerful pack and, and a backline that includes plenty of individual talent like they're they're struggling to get ches and colby into the game at times where he, where he's one of the most effective and, and exciting attacking players in the whole competition they're probably not really harnessing his skills too well but their defense is so supremely effective it just suffocates you jack nienaber is obviously tasking them with having massive line speed and that was the thing you saw because again to their credit Japan they, they didn't go down you know not having fired a shot they threw everything at the box and some of the passes under pressure were thrilling and, and th- again the volume when someone like Fukuoka makes a break is, is just exciting in the stadium w- with the Japanese support but very often the, the box line speed and physicality saw them smashing that kind of midfield pod from the, the Japanese attack and, and then they're kind of going backwards and they don't get that quick ruck ball that they that they really crave and, and it was very slow at times the box big double hits and, and then competition at the breakdown where Owen Pry had picked out that they were going to go after them uh, they went after that and, and it was really sensible kind of mature rugby from the box um, yeah you'd, you'd probably from their point of view worry that their attack m- might come up a little bit short at times but they really are an awesomely powerful and cohesive machine in how they grind teams down Yeah, rest assured, this is not a reference to another picture which was doing the rounds pre-tournament of the South Africans in their dressing room looking like a group of man bears. But Owen, they do kind of resemble Razzie's monster on steroids in attack. Just the fact that they are huge, bruising men. They do, as South African teams traditionally have tried to do, bulldoze the opposition. But perhaps as Murray says... Um, Even though they have that little sprinkling of individual class and magic in wider areas and uh, in the outside channels, perhaps don't quite harness it uh, to the extent that they might. And I wonder, could that be the difference in their potential World Cup final against either New Zealand or England, both of whom seem to actually be able to play with all 15 in a cohesive way? 
Yeah, I, th- I think to be fair to them, they had a template to beat Japan. Uh, it was a pragmatic approach uh, and probably more conservative that we've, than we've seen in the rugby championship where they were w- more willing to kind of attack and get to the edges to the likes of Kobe. Their template in this game was to just absolutely dominate the territorial battle and make Japan go to set piece. A couple of things we talked about last last week, Murray, was line outs and breakdown and and. When Japan played Ireland and Scotland, they had 12 lineouts in total in those two games. Against South Africa last night, they had 13 lineouts. So just a higher volume of lineouts, and they lost five of those. And then the other, the other key point was the breakdown against Ireland and Scotland in those two big wins. They only lost two breakdowns, and last night they lost six and actually had 20 turnovers in the game in total. So South Africa just had a template of playing zero rugby in their own, own half, uh, kicked through the clerk and um, through Pollard. I think between the two of them, they kicked over 29 times in the game and, and, and just dominated territory. And, and, and what uh, the real struggle with Japan's attacking framework, because it is such a wide um, structure, is if you're not getting go forward out of your forwards in the middle, then it just doesn't work. And as the half developed, you could see Japan starting to get really, really lateral with their attack. And, and South Africa's line speed, as Murray's already talked about, just started to dominate those collisions. And, and South Africa were clever. They just took away the Japanese forwards' legs. They had 10 line outs in the game and they mauled all 10. And they eventually broke them down with that, that ninth line out maul uh, going 40 metres in the lead up to the clerk's try. And, and we talked about it being a 23 man game. I had no doubt. Uh, South Africa's best hooker is Malcolm Marks but they started him on the bench with a key role to play off the bench uh, Snyman coming off the bench um, Kitsoff De Kock which just once Kitsoff and De Kock came on their scrum became dominant they, they could they could build penalties off their scrum and and they had a template that worked to beat Japan. It was pragmatic. It wasn't pretty to look at. But Japan, probably off the back of that was their fifth game where I think they pretty much used the same forward pack five five weeks in a row. And you could see it, could, it started to tell on them. And, and they just couldn't create that momentum through the middle of the field that their attacking framework needs. We may not get a chance to speak to you later in the week, Owen. So while we'll get Murray's predictions for the semi-finals on Thursday's pod, um, what are you thinking? Maybe starting with that South Africa Wales semi, which way do you see it going? Yeah, it's a difficult one. I I, I do think uh, South Africa have a kind of a few more strings to their bow and can play that power game, uh, real set piece orientated, an excellent kicking game, uh, but also just have that little bit more X factor between Mpimpi, Kobe and uh, LaRue in their backfield uh, to kind of cause Wales a few different types of headaches. And But yeah, I'd back, I'd back South Africa to win. Um, obviously, Wales are, have that winning habit at the moment. They, they don't really know what it's like to lose in, in big games, which is, is crucially important getting into the knockout stages. Um, I think it'll be a tight affair, but I back South Africa's power just to be too much for Wales at this stage. And what about the All Blacks versus England then? Yeah, it's intriguing, isn't it? Just even trying to visualize what the game will look at will look like. Will will England go to a kind of territorial battle and use the the Farrell Slade potentially bring forward back in uh, Ben Youngs and and try and kind of dominate field position through their kicking game. But if their kicking game isn't on point, then we've seen the likes of Reese and Bridge and and Bowden Barrett from the back. If you give them kind of unstructured possession they, they they thrive in that as well so and then from New Zealand's perspective do they maintain that high volume kicking game that they did against Ireland and, and, and try and dominate field position through the boot as well so it's going to be really interesting what styles of play uh, both teams bring out 
it's it's a tough one to call. Um, you'd, you'd have to back New Zealand on, on the basis of how they played on Saturday. I know Ireland contributed to their own downfall, but I thought New Zealand's skill level and, and, and particularly their pack, which I thought was really important, how how they kind of fronted up to Ireland's mall. Even, even their first try at the weekend, they attacked Ireland around the fringes. It was very similar to how they played against the Lions in 2017. That kind of closing contact skills, which were so impressive and... Yeah, I, I think if New Zealand's pack can hold up to England, then I can see New Zealand winning, but it, it's an intriguing game. It certainly is. And Murray, you touched upon this in great detail, actually, on a member's podcast last week, just the future that lies ahead for Japan in rugby terms um, and where they might even end up in competition terms, uh, be it Six Nations or more likely a rugby championship. But just one final word on them, because I know everybody here and everybody I think around the world who is a rugby fan has been quite taken by the story and the journey that they've been on. What kind of a legacy do you see them leaving behind having now bowed out in the last eight? Yeah, I see them as being genuine kind of top table nation now moving forward. It's actually interesting, just today actually, there's some chat that they may be going into the rugby championship sooner rather than later and, and Brett Gosper the world rugby CEO has kind of come out and said yeah the, you know the, the rugby championship will want to get them in because that's the again we talked about the business side of it that's the riveting thing over here the television audiences have been off the charts like you're talking 50 million plus tuning in to watch the national team so that's obviously attractive to to all the competitions so I, I genuinely think we are going to see them uh, integrated into that I suppose the top tier of, of rugby um, and that has to be the legacy because they've showed they can be competitive and, and yeah, ran out of steam against the, the box but their style of play and the quality of player that they have is just, was, it was riveting to watch and, and the people as well, the support was just incredible. That's been one of the joys of being over here is um, interacting with the Japanese public. They're so welcoming and curious about other rugby nations and, and just generally happy to have you in their country Um watching what has been a brilliant World Cup their style of play has won so many admirers and I would say has inspired quite a few coaches out there as well and um, they're just creative in how they play so they've definitely been one of the most it's been a romantic story but it was effective as well they topped their pool it was a shock that they did so and now it looks like they're definitely here to stay yeah, it's been a pleasure to watch. It's been a pleasure as well to listen to both of you gentlemen. I thought it would be like having my teeth pulled, to be honest, but uh, you made that easy. Uh, <laughs> so fair play to you. Uh, we'll catch you both later in the week. Murray, you'll be back for the 42 Rugby Weekly on Thursday. And uh, no doubt we'll speak to you again, Owen, probably this time next week. Yeah. But um, until then, thanks very much for joining us, gents. Cheers. Cheers, lads. And thank you to everybody at home. Uh, this podcast was brought to you by Volkswagen, a proud sponsor of Irish Rugby. We'll be back again during the week. And until then, have a good week. Take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Robbie Robbie Weekly. Little reverse pass. Oh, 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 Magic! You're not alive, boys, so you start kicking when the room is spinning and the words are sticking.